Section 19 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 11, Boulogne-sur-Mer, Part 2. Cap Grisnez. We made a lovely excursion one day to Cap Grisnez, just at the end of a wild bit of coast about 25 kilometers from Boulogne. The road was enchanting on the top of a cliff all along the sea. We passed through Vimereux, a small bathing place four or five miles from Boulogne, and one or two other villages, then went through a wild desolate tract of sand hills and plains and came upon the lighthouse, one of the most important of the coast, a very powerful light that all inward-bound boats were delighted to see. There are one or two villas near the top of the cliff, then the road turned sharply down to the beach, a beautiful broad expanse of yellow sand reaching very far out that day as it was dead low tide. In the distance we saw figures, couldn't distinguish what they were doing, but supposed they were fishing for shrimps, which was what our party meant to do. The auto was filled with nets, baskets, and clothes, as well as luncheon baskets. The hotel, a very good simple one, with a broad piazza going all around it, was halfway down the cliff, and the woman was very complaisante and helpful said there were plenty of shrimps, crabs, and lobsters, and no one to fish. She and her husband had been out at four o'clock that morning and had brought back catrapient of shrimps. No one knew what she meant, but it was evidently a measure of some kind. I suppose an English pint. She gave us a cabin where the two young matrons dressed, or rather undressed, as they reappeared in their bathing trousers, which stopped a little distance above the knee. Very short skirts, bare legs, espadrilles on their feet, and large Panama hats to protect them from the sun. The men had merely rolled up their trousers. They went out very far. I could just make them out. They seemed a part of the sea and sky, moving objects standing out against the horizon. I made myself very comfortable with rugs and cushions under the cliff. I had my book as I knew it would be a long operation. It was enchanting, sitting there such a beautiful afternoon. We saw the English coast quite distinctly. There was not a sound. No bathing cabins or tents, nobody on the shore, but a few fishermen were spreading nets on poles to catch the fish as the tide came up. The sea was quite blue, and as the afternoon lengthened, there were lovely soft lights over everything, such warm tints it might almost have been the Mediterranean in the Riviera. A few fishing boats passed in the distance, but there was nothing to break the great stillness, not even the ripple of the waves, as the sea was too far out. It was a curious sensation to be sitting there quite alone, the blue sea at my feet and the cliff rising straight up behind me. The bay is small, two points jutting out on each side, completely shutting it in. There are a good many rocks. The water dashes over them finely when the tide is high and the sea rough. I got rather stiff sitting still and walked about a little on the hard beach and talked to the fishermen. They were looking on amused and indulgently at our amateurs, and said there were plenty of fish of all kinds, if one knew how to take them. They said they made very good hauls with their nets in certain seasons, but lots of fish came in with the tide and got stranded, couldn't get back through the nets. One of them had two enormous crabs in his baskets, which I bought at once, and we brought them home in the bottom of the auto wrapped up in very thick paper, as they were still alive and could give a nasty pinch, the man said. About five, I thought I made out my party more distinctly. Their faces were turned homeward, so I went to meet them as far as the dry sand lasted. I had a very long walk as the tide was at its lowest. They came back very slowly, stopping at all the little pools and poking their nets under the rocks to get what they could. They had made a very fair basket of really big shrimps and were very wet, very hungry and very pleased with their performance. We had very good tea and excellent bread and butter at the hotel. They gave us a table on the piazza in the sun, which finished drying the garments of the party. I fancy they had gone in deeper than they thought. However, salt water never gives cold, and nobody was any the worse for the wedding. The woman of the hotel said we ought to go see a fisherman's hut on the top of the cliff near the lighthouse before we went back. 
The same family of fishermen had lived there for generations, and it was a marvel how anyone could live in such a place. We could find our way very easily, as the path was marked by white stones. So we climbed up the cliff, and a few minutes' walk brought us to one of the most wretched habitations I have ever seen. A little low stone hut built so close to the edge of the cliff one would think a violent storm must blow it over. No windows. A primitive chimney, hardly more than a hole in the roof. A little low door that one had to stoop to pass through. One room, dark and cold. The floor of beaten earth, damp and uneven, almost in ruts. There were two beds, a table, two chairs, and a stove. Nondescript garments hanging on the walls. A woman with a baby was sitting at the table. Another child on the floor. Both miserable, little, puny, weak-eyed, pale children. The woman told me she had six. All lived there. One man was sitting on the bed mending a net, another on the floor drinking some black stuff out of a cup. I think the baby was drinking the same. Two or three children were stretching big nets on the top of the cliff. They too looked miserable little specimens of humanity, bare-legged, unkempt, trousers and jackets and holes. However, the woman was quite cheerful, didn't complain nor ask for money. The men accepted two francs to drink our health. One wonders how children ever grow up in such atmosphere without light or air or decent food. The drive home was beautiful, not nearly so lonely. Peasants and fishermen were coming back from their work, women and children driving the cows home. We noticed, too, a few little low, whitewashed cottages in the fields, almost hidden by the sand hills, which we hadn't seen coming out. Hardelow Hardelow was a great resource to us. It is a fine domain, beautiful pine woods running down to the sea, a great stretch of green meadow, and a most picturesque old castle, quite the type of the chateau fort. The castle has now been transformed into a country club with golf links, tennis, and well-kept lawns under big trees, which give a splendid shade and are most resting to the eye after the glare of the beach. There is no view of the sea from the castle, but from the top of the towers on a fine day, one just sees a quiver of light beneath the skyline, which might be the sea. The chateau has had its history like all the old feudal castles on the seaboard, and has changed hands very often, being sometimes French and sometimes English. It was strongly fortified and resisted many attacks from the English before it actually came into their possession. Part of the wall and a curious old gateway are all that remain of the feudal days. The castle is said to have been built by Charlemagne. Henry VIII of England lived in it for some time, and the preliminaries of a treaty of peace between that monarch and Francois I were signed there, the French and English ambassadors arriving in a great state, with an endless army of retainers. One wonders where they were all lodged, as the castle could never have been large. One sees that from the foundations, but I fancy habits were very simple in those days, and the suites probably slept on the floor in one of the halls with all their clothes on, the troopers keeping on their jackboots so long that they had to be cut off sometimes, the feet and legs so swollen. The drive from the club to the plage is charming, sometimes through pretty narrow roads with high banks on each side with hedges on top, quite like parts of Devonshire, and nice little low whitewashed cottages with green shutters and red doors, much more like England than France. We stopped at a cottage called the Dickens House, where Charles Dickens had lived for some time. It is only one story high, white with green shutters, stands at the edge of an old-fashioned garden filled with all sorts of ordinary garden flowers. Roses, hollyhocks, larkspurs, pinks, all growing most luxuriantly and making patches of color in the green surroundings. We saw Dickens' study, his table still in the window, where he always wrote, looking over the garden to an endless stretch of green fields. The plage is very new. There is a nice clean hotel with broad piazzas and balconies directly on the sea, and a few chalets are already built, but there is an absolute dearth of trees and shade. There was quite a strong sea breeze the day we were there, and the fine white sand was blown high into the air in circles, getting into our eyes and hair. There is a splendid beach, miles of sand, not a rock or a cliff, absolutely level. The domain of Hardelow brings to a company of which Mr. John Whitley was the president. He had concessions for a tramway from Boulogne to Hardelow, which will certainly bring people to the plage and club. 
Now there is only an auto bus, which goes very slowly and is constantly out of order. Once the club is organized, I think it cannot fail to be a charming resort. There is plenty of game in the forest. They have a good piece of it. Perfect golf and tennis grounds. As much deep-sea fishing as one wants. We went often to tea at the chateau. F played golf, and we walked about and sat under the trees, and the children were quite happy playing on the lawns where they were as safe as in their nurseries. End of section 19. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. End of Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington.